for May 19th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 307. You're not better than your body, even if you're Godzilla. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, and I am here with Ben Adams and Pete Fenzel. Hi, Ben. Hey, Matt. Hey, Pete. Aloha. <laughs> I'll say it again at the end. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was um, writing show notes for, uh, for the supplemental Amazing Spider-Man 2 podcast uh, that Pete was kind enough to host with... Uh, guest overthinkers Hannah Full and Ben Snickhoff. And um, I was l- looking for the spelling of their names. I, I was not sure that I had uh, Snitkoff right. Um, and I was waiting for you to introduce them on the thing. And, and it took like uh, five minutes to get to the question of the week and, and introduce uh, Hannah and Ben. And I realized I do the same thing. So I said everybody's name this time right at the beginning of the podcast so that uh, everyone knows who's here. There's no ambiguity in the guest list. Um, and I hope that everyone finds that useful as a public service, the, uh, the audience, to know exactly who is on this podcast now uh, before we launch into the question of the, the week. Uh, question of the week for you, panel, Ben and Pete, we know who you are. I mean, I'm sorry, sidebar, that's valuable, right? That's valuable information. Or is, is it more valuable to gradually reveal who's on, who's on the podcast, right? Like, I hope Ben is on the podcast this week so that I can drink because Pete's not first in the alphabet. Otherwise, I would be unable to drink, right? Is, is that more valuable is, or is knowing, uh, knowing which of your friends from overthinking it is, uh, is podcasting this week? Is that more valuable? I don't know. That's not the question of the week, Ben. Don't, don't answer that. <laughs> we don't get to answer questions like that. Matt is, Matt is the supreme ruler of these sorts of things. I, I guess so. I don't know. I always feel bad when you say that, Pete, because, uh, I, I want us to be a, um, like a Monty Python-esque collective of, of, you know, where like an we... autonomous collective, like an anarcho-syndicalist <laughs> compound is that what this <laughs> is that i yeah i'm i'm sorry i don't have the exact quote to hand right now um in what ways is overthinking it like an anarcho-syndicalist compound no that's not the question of the week either <laughs> <laughs> why am i going down this rat hole that is not the question of the week either uh the question of the week is this in honor of some balcony-based beer throwing that has uh, been in the news recently. In honor <laughs> big of this, news, big news, <laughs> big dominating the headlines. <laughs> there has been something buzzing my feed for the last two or three hours, and it is that uh, Matthew McConaughey was standing on a balcony in uh, in New Orleans, and he looked across the street, and in this photograph, I saw everyone was pointing. And was everyone was like, "Hey, Academy Award-winning actor Matthew McConaughey, look over there! Look who it is!" And then uh, you cut over to uh, a picture of Brett. Well, you don't cut, right? You cut in the sense of like uh, it's it's very much like La Jetée. It's like uh, these still images that, when when taken in sequence, kind of give the illusion of movement. But you you it's like you snap your head over to the other side, and there's Brad Pitt standing on the balcony opposite, and he's like. Hey, Matthew McConaughey, what's up? And Matthew McConaughey is like, hey, Brad Pitt, what's up? And Brad Pitt is like, 
I have an idea. Now, I'm, I'm embellishing this a little bit based on my experience, but uh, based on my experience of these pictures, I'm imagining what they might, what they might have thought, um, these great actors. And uh, Brad Pitt goes and gets a beer, throws it across from balcony to balcony uh, to Matthew McConaughey, and uh, Matthew McConaughey enjoys himself a cold one. Um, am I leaving anything out? Only one vital detail, which is that one? yeah, Drew Brees was there too. Oh, Drew sorry. Brees was there too. Drew Brees, <laughs> as revealed in the last photograph, with no explanation or context, quarterback <laughs> for the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees, Super Bowl winning, Drew Brees. He he should have been the one to throw the beer, right? Yeah, I mean he's got the arm for it. I guess. Do you think that this is like an insult? Do you think it's an insult to throw something in front of a quarterback? I think it's an insult to throw only one to two guys. <laughs> <laughs> so See, Drew Brees is really hoping that Brad Pitt would also throw him a beer, and he's like, oh, man, he didn't? And, oh, man. The question is, is, does Drew Brees think of himself as enough of a star that he was, like, affronted by this? Or, like, not enough of a star that he was, like, hurt by this? Right? And was like, oh, I guess, I guess that makes sense. I mean, he is, he's, a big, he's a big movie star, and I'm just a sports guy. I'm just a... a I mean, basically, has he grown into his Wrangler jeans yet is the question that I have for Drew Brees. Has he grown into Brett Favre's like uh, grizzled endorsement jeans, his U-shaped Wranglers that he throws the stick to the dog in and whatnot? But none of those questions are the question of the week. Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> because if I, if I am the supreme arbiter of things like this, I'm going to command. I'm going to dig in and, uh, and impose my will um, upon this podcast. Uh, you know, I just loaded up BuzzFeed um, to uh, put a link to this story in the show notes, and I immediately regretted it because in the list of uh, BuzzFeed stories on in the right-hand sidebar on BuzzFeed, one of the thumbnail images, it's number six as I'm looking at it, uh, below what looks like a high school yearbook photo of... Um, of uh, Oh, it says, can you guess who the, who the celebrity is? Apparently, I cannot guess who the celebrity is. It's, um, uh, what's her name? She's uh, Charlize Theron. Yes. Uh, below a high school picture of Charlize Theron, there is a, uh, a picture of a butt, a bikini-clad uh, woman's butt. And this is really bumming me out about the decline and fall of Western civilization, about the state of our society. But I'm not going to put a link to that in the show notes. I'm going to put a link to Brad Pitt tossing a beer to Matthew McConaughey upon realizing they are neighbors. And in that BuzzFeed headline, my favorite thing is the use of the word upon, because it sounds like (laughs) the title of a poem, right? You know, stanzas composed upon realizing Matthew McConaughey and Brad Pitt are neighbors in New Orleans. Um, Upon the occasion of Drew Brees also being there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... So, uh, (laughs) oh yeah, and Drew Brees was there too. Um, uh, In honor of this uh, this aerial maneuver, this uh, feat of throwing of things from one place to another, um, what would you like to throw from balcony to balcony in New Orleans, and to whom would you like to throw it? Wow, that was a long way around the barn to the question. Uh, drink, because Pete Fenzel is not first in the alphabet, and I know you've been waiting for that. It's Ben Adams. Hey, how's it go? 
So, I mean, I think I already tipped my hand a little bit with my first answer, which was I would throw a beer to Drew Brees so that he would have one too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think I, I think I have to, uh, to to scramble for a secondary answer here, and primarily just because the pictures are are just kind of surreal here. Um, I don't I don't know. There's something very surreal about these pictures. I'd like to figure out how I can make it more surreal. Um, and so just probably because of what I was doing immediately before this podcast, which was reading Supreme Court opinions. I'd like to have all nine members of the Supreme Court in a balcony in New Orleans, and I'd just like to throw each one of them a beer. Um, so me just bombing beers across New Orleans to, to the members of the Supreme Court. Do you think that would be a good uh, strategy in oral argument before the Supreme Court? <laughs> <laughs> just standing there at the lectern or whatever you stand behind and <laughs> opening the cooler behind you. <laughs> you know, I, it can't, I would pay to see the, mo- the movie in which Matthew McConaughey is still the lawyer from uh, A Time to Kill, like appealing the case. And he uses that move. I would pay a lot of money to see that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be excellent. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you want to beer every every justice. There are not justices whose jurisprudence you are more or less sympathetic to, who whom you would uh, reward or punish with uh, with provision or lack of provision of beer. Uh, you know, I might, you know, I might have to decide who gets the microbrews and who gets the, you know, the domestics. Right. But, uh, you know, I'll leave that for, for another podcast. Sure. Absolutely. That, that'll be our legal, that'll be our Supreme Court podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've already, I've already pushed the bounds of uh, putting Supreme Court jurisprudence on, and, on our April Fool's Day uh, posts. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, all right. All right. Pete Fenzel, next in the alphabet. Drink because he's not first. All right. Well, when I thought about throwing objects, I, of course, thought about the greatest of all throws of all thrown objects, uh, which is, of course, the 2003 throw by Aaron Hemmings of the Aerobi Flying Disc, which sailed an astonishing 1,333 feet. Did you have an Aerobi Flying Disc when you were growing up, Matt? The, the hollow one, the one, the one that's just a ring? Yes, it's, it's not, I, I wouldn't describe it as hollow. Perhaps a torus. I mean, it doesn't really has a hole in the middle. That's well, very it's a, true. I mean, in what sense is it a disc? I think of a disc as a, as a solid that is sort of uh, – that doesn't have a hole. It doesn't have a hole in the middle. It's like the, – it's a flying sort of rail. But yes, I had an, well, I had an aerobi. And I well, also now – Yeah? I was just saying that's, a, that's an interesting question. Like, in, in what sense is an aerobi a disc? It is notionally a disc because it is employed in the same way that a disc would be employed, even though – the much of the matter that would constitute the disc is absent, right? Like the the throwing is the is a disc in the rounding or the throwing, right? Like is that what makes what makes the disc is an interesting philosophical question. But you were talking about your history of owning frisbees and such. Oh yeah, well I had a I, I did have one of those growing up, but now the the person who um, made that also uh, is responsible for the AeroPress. Uh, yes, that was going to be my answer, and you ruined it. Thank <laughs> oh, you so much, I'm Matt. So for that. Sorry, and I was going. To but, throw... but Pete, I don't. I'm here in New Orleans, and I don't have an AeroPress. What, <laughs> what, what shall we do about it? I was going to say that I was going to throw to Alan Adler, the inventor of the AeroBee, but I was going to switch things up by throwing him an AeroPress, which he also invented. But please tell us about the AeroPress that you own, Matt. Is the AeroPress 
given you more pleasure than your aerobie gave you when you were growing up? I guess so. I mean, it's it's that. I mean, if you consider like uh, if you consider caffeine sort of an addiction, right? Rather right. than a source of pleasure, it's a it's a way of it's a way of eliminating pain. It's a way of getting to zero, you know, rather than getting from zero uh, to, into like positive numbers, which which are pleasurable in in my. Uh, in my system here. Um, do you consider recreational hurling to be uh, an addiction or more of something that you do for pleasure? Well, hurling, <laughs> I'm, Oh, wow. Uh, sorry. I'm not, I'm not going to pick that up, Pete. That, that could go to a very dark place. <laughs> what, so like the Scottish hurling leagues? Or yeah, well, it's like I, yeah, absolutely. Oh, like boot rally, that kind of thing. That's, that's a recreational hurling is something I did in college. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> it was a, it was a tough time for all of us. And I don't want to, well, we'll don't want to revisit those days. We're thinking a podcast where we talk about all these sorts of issues, but this is not a very special episode. This is a normal episode, so we're going to talk about throwing stuff. It's a very um, normal episode. <laughs> what else? I guess if, I, if it's if you already took the AeroPress, it's the usual. Other... It's the usual topic. I mean, that's for sure. For <laughs> I mean, he has forty other patents, right? So what other in optics, electronics? So let's look for the other patents that Alan Adler. Has. Maybe maybe I would take the the sum total paper of his patent filings and throw it at him across the thing, <laughs> creating a giant confetti over the streets of the French Quarter in New Orleans. Um, uh, he let's see. Here's here's a bunch of his patents. Uh, Alan Adler apparatus for measuring the torsion of a rotating shaft. Oh man, these are all off. Let's see. Alignment <laughs> using electronic scanner. Texas Instruments Incorporated apparatus for telemetering DC signals for Aerotherm Corporation. I would I would throw him a phase scatter detection and reduction circuit and method. Uh, two worldwide citations. Hey, boomerang, hey, boomerang by Alan Adler. <laughs> hey, hey, Pete. Yeah. That rotating shaft is one bad mother. So I'm talking about Alan Adler. <laughs> <laughs> so what is boomerang, boomerang? Uh, oh no, that I can't. I'm not getting good information the, from this. The, the boomerang's so nice they named it twice. <laughs> so uh yeah the the uh the AeroPress is actually a wonderful coffee brewing uh mechanism in that it combines um it combines the best of of a lot of worlds in terms of like french press filter coffee and espresso right and it's a cylindrical uh, it's a cylindrical device, and Mark Lee has opined on this podcast that it looks like a penis pump. So it's not me. It's Mark Lee who says that it looks like a penis pump. And it consists of two, uh, it consists of two cylindrical plastic pieces, one of which fits inside the other and has a rubber seal to, uh, to plunge down uh, in the other. And so uh, at the bottom of the, of the outer plastic piece, you fit... Uh, a filter, a coffee filter, a paper filter that is maybe two and a half inches in diameter, is circular. Uh, you put your grounds in there. You pour the hot water over that. It sits in, uh, dripping slightly through the paper filter in this uh, plastic cylinder, and then you plunge uh, down. And now there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, nuances to how you can brew with an AeroPress. You can invert the AeroPress. Uh, and use it a little bit more like a French press. But the uh, the important things about it are um, the the coffee is sitting in a chamber with the water, like in a French press. Uh, it's being um, 
extracted with pressure, uh, right? The pressure created by plunging down uh, with the inner plastic plastic tube on the outer plastic tube, uh, as in the sort of espresso method of making coffee. And it's passing through a paper filter, as with most drip methods of making coffee. Uh, and it produces just beautiful... Um, clean, really good tasting single cups of, uh, single cups of coffee. And if you're, uh, into that kind of thing as I am, um, you almost certainly own one because they are absurdly reasonably priced. Uh, you know what? I'm going to put a link to one in the show notes that, uh, that is an affiliate link for overthinking it. So if you have not yet had the pleasure of sampling coffee from an AeroPress, why don't you do yourself a favor? And get yourself one uh, and support overthinking it while you're doing it. Um, Actually, you can, probably, or you can oh, construct ahead. one based on the description. <laughs> no, because now. then you would be violating the patent. <laughs> Owned by Alan Adler. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you, should, you should buy two so that you can have one for Drew Brees when he comes over. Because <laughs> it would be really rude if Drew Brees couldn't also have uh, some coffee. Right, exactly. It's, it's yeah. like uh, you always have a glass of wine on the table ready for Drew Brees because sometimes he, <laughs> he, uh, he arrives unbidden. All right, well, so- we, all, we, all set our, we all set the extra place setting for Drew Brees at Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is that just my family? There's <laughs> one time I didn't do that and Drew Brees beat me up in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the news is so interesting. It's all coming together. <laughs> so many memes. Yeah, I'm, li- I'm like drowning in memes right now. Uh, all right, I guess I guess it's my turn. So uh, here's a little here's a little glimpse into my personal life. I'm having a uh, a college friends weekend with overthinkers Matt Belinky and Josh McNeil uh, in a couple of weekends um, in New Orleans. So we will presumably. Uh, I, I don't know where we're staying, but we will presumably have a balcony, uh, wherever it is. And in fact, I'm not going to book a, a hotel or an Airbnb or whatever it is, uh, unless we have a balcony. I'd actually welcome travel advice. Uh, you know what? I'm going to take advantage of our, uh, our position on, uh, on this podcast and say, if there are any overthinkers in New Orleans, uh, who want to... Give us advice on where to stay. We would be very grateful. Uh, We would be very grateful for that and would throw you all manner of things from the balcony of whatever place you suggest uh, as as payment for your expert advice. Um, So, uh, you know, um, Blinky is always getting into hilarious scrapes. Uh, and so I'm imagining that he's going to lose his hotel key at 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 least one point uh, in this. and so I'm going to throw him a hotel key uh, from balcony to balcony, um, though it will probably be one of those plastic cards. Uh, so it will not, I mean, I don't know, how would you throw those? I guess you have to sort of throw it like playing card style, like throwing playing cards into a, into a bowl or a trash can or something like that. Um, or, or you know what you do? Pete, it all comes together. You cut a hole, a circular hole into your hotel room key so that it will fly like an arrow bee flying disc. <laughs> <laughs> and you, uh, you give it a good, just a, your best ultimate Frisbee from college, uh, flick of the wrist, throw. And that's what I'm going to do to uh, get Belinky back into his hotel room um, where he will almost certainly have locked himself out on his balcony. Uh, probably in some state of undress. 
So, uh, yes, that is, uh, that is our tribute to Brad Pitt tossing a beer to Matthew McConaughey upon realizing uh, they are neighbors. Let's go to the next trending topic. <laughs> All right. Have you seen this bikini-clad butt? It's number six on the, <laughs> on the homepage, guys. Um, I don't even want to know. Uh, oh, it's it's <laughs> okay. This is awful. I'm sorry. I'm going to I'm I'm going to go down this rat hole. Uh, it's uh, BuzzFeed style is the vertical that it's in, uh, and the headline is 19 reasons bikinis are an invention of Satan, um, which is really an excuse to th- put a lot of bikini pictures on a, a web page. Um, and have one be, uh, uh, and have one be the uh, the thumbnail image that shows up on Facebook. Way to go, BuzzFeed! Way to raise <laughs> the level of the discourse. We're very, very, very uh, grateful to you. So, um, uh, Ben, I, I'm given to understand that you saw uh, you saw a small art film uh, in limited release uh, this uh, this weekend. Is that is that the case? I, I did. I saw a little movie about a little a little known character, but he's got a big heart. And, <laughs> well, a big everything else because I saw Godzilla. <laughs> uh, so um, none, neither of us saw Godzilla. So obviously, it should be the topic of the podcast. What are you going to? Uh, uh, what What was your reaction to uh, to seeing Godzilla? So Godzilla was great. Like, and by Godzilla, I mean the character Godzilla was great in the movie. <laughs> um, like, is there an Oscar buzz for Godzilla? Is he really going <laughs> to finally take that podium after 50-some-odd years? There, there should be. Absolutely, there should be. There's actually a great video floating around on the internet somewhere of Brian Cranston talking about how Godzilla was very difficult to work with on set. <laughs> it's worth your while, but uh, the character design was great. Uh, pretty much everything involved in the actual monsters of the movie, I really enjoyed. Everything else kind of took a step down from there. Um, so once you get into, once you get into all the monster fights, um, the uh, the movie pr- is definitely worth worth the price of admission. At least that part. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Now, w- were there? Um, I understand there was some like. Uh, some sort of naval business in in the Godzilla movie. Yes, there was. Like they go into his belly button. <laughs> they don't, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but yes, the the navy. Well, pretty much all of these. This is definitely a uh, mil- very much like the '98 Godzilla. Well, not most of the Godzilla movies. The 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 other star of the movie, other than the monsters, is the military getting trashed by the monsters. Oh dear. Um, so as our as our military correspondent, what uh, what do you have to say about the uh, about the de- depiction or the role of uh, the U.S. Navy in the Godzilla movie? I mean, and actually, so it this is this is something I, I've noticed is fairly common in disaster movies. Is on the one hand, it makes the military look far more competent than it actually is. In the sense that within, like, days of finding, hours, really, of finding out that there's a huge monster, everybody in the military just kind of takes it in stride. And all of a sudden, there's, like, people being activated and, like, surging to the crisis zone and, like, logistics trains. And, like, that stuff takes a long time to get set up. Like, you, like the, the, the bulk of the action of the movie takes place in San Francisco. And by, like, the time the monsters have arrived in San Francisco, there's, like... The entirety of the United States military is descended upon the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Like 
that's not really something that could happen on short notice. Like it takes a long time to move people in in large in large numbers, and to then deploy, like to deploy like division size force to uh, right to any to anywhere in the world, even on American soil. Right, and it's even harder when it's in response to a threat that a day ago you did not know existed and didn't conceive of as existing in the universe. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bit of a gap when you call someone on the phone like, hey, we've got to get ships to San Francisco right now. Why? Is it the Russians? No, it's a lizard. Like, (laughs) there's a bit of a gap there. I don't know. (laughs) Don't you think that somewhere in the Pentagon, somewhere in the E-ring or something, right, like, there is a war game being conducted in some, like, computer simulation that involves uh, combat against a giant lizard? I mean, one can only hope. (laughs) Because, and I I say one, by which I mean me, because I would like to have that job. (laughs) But though there there is in the news in the last couple weeks, uh, there was a news. It's uh, Conop eight 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 eight. It was this un- unclassified document, uh, but it was a the Pentagon's plan for dealing with a zombie invasion, and this is like a real document. <laughs> like it was a real plan that the Pentagon came up with. Um, and there's a little disclaimer at the beginning, basically saying that like we want to be able to plan for certain like large scale disasters. But the problem is, whenever we do that, people freak out about that disaster actually happening. And so we wanted to pick something that no one could believe is real, so we could still practice, so we could still plan for something. Uh huh. So maybe there's another one for Godzilla. I don't know. The, I, yeah, I mean, I wonder what the it's it's maybe a little easier to see what an analog, a real world analog to like is the zombie apocalypse could be. I wonder what the, uh, what the, what the real world, the non-fantasy analog to Godzilla could be. Right. Though actually there is one, there's a scene in the movie that I think actually kind, at least partially touches on that because when Godzilla is approaching Hawaii, there, there's a, the first act of the movie is kind of the action converging from, crossing the Pacific from Japan to Hawaii um, or for, to, through Hawaii and then ultimately to San Francisco. Uh, when Godzilla is, this is the first time you've seen him as he's approaching uh, Hawaii. He's so big that he causes like a tidal wave, like a tsunami. And so the water starts receding away from the beach, like a tsunami is coming and all the people start running away because this is, you know, Godzilla's wake is so big that he's sucking all the water down. Um, and I, I actually do think that this movie, to the extent that it deals with real world issues, is very much much more similar to a natural disaster than I think like a geopolitical situation because the scope of these monsters are so big, and the U.S. military is so laughably ineffective against them. Um, and by that I mean like the military isn't incompetent; it's just that our weapons are so meek in comparison to the scale of the monsters that there's just nothing we can do about it hmm. um so it's very, they have a very natural disaster there's very much a feeling that these monsters are just out of our ability to control which is i mean hearing that i feel like it there raises a natural comparison to pacific rim right which is about monsters that you know monsters coming out of the ocean related to the whole kind of like kaiju tradition the big rubber suit monster fighting tradition but at the but even that there was a lot of talk on our site and on other sites about how 
insisting on approaching this from sort of a combat standpoint, right? That we need to fight, figure out a robot that can punch the monster, punch the kaiju, right? Is like misconceiving of a situation that could be dealt with more systemically, right? Like right. such as like positioning a giant cannon right on top of the rift and just like blowing up each monster as it comes up out of the hole, right? right. Like, um, <laughs> right, which, which would be more of like something like similar to establishing like a dam or like a, a levee system of some kind, right? Some sort of like <laughs> like passive installation. I mean, an active installation, I suppose, in terms of its operation, but in terms of how it conceptually operates. You know, feeling more passive than actually going out there to fight. I mean, does it feel does it feel more uh, about like a natural disaster movie than Pacific? Does, for you, having seen it, does the comparison to Pacific Rim yield any uh, insights or anything interesting? Yes, and I think mm-hmm. you, you're right on that. It does feel less like, a, despite the the heavy presence, because obviously they need human characters. That the main character is a a Navy EOD tech. Um, but uh, it definitely does feel much more like a natural, like much more like an almost like an Independence Day, or a, even a you know a Roland Emmerich natural disaster movie than it does a Pacific Rim movie that's really all about the the combat. Um, and I say that particularly because the the main character whose name I'm forgetting, who, whose actual name I forgot, it's Ford is the, the main character's name. Uh, he spends a good chunk of the movie not actually trying to fight Godzilla, but just trying to get home to his family, which is much more of like what you do during a natural disaster. Like most people during a natural disaster, they're not worried about fighting the, the hurricane. They're worried about like rescuing their loved ones or rescuing other people's loved ones and like just trying to get out of the way of the disaster. Uh <laughs> Matt, you seem palpably disinterested in Godzilla. Is there something wrong? <laughs> I mean, are, are you interested in Godzilla, like, in general? If you hear that Godzilla is, like, doing a thing, is that something that's exciting to you? Sorry, I was going to... I was reading this Pentagon document about the, oh. the, about the, zombie <laughs> the zombies. Uh, uh, yeah. I put a, put, a, uh, put a link uh, to an article about that in, in, the, uh, in the show notes. No, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not interested in... in um, I'm not interested in in destruction. I mean, I sort of wonder about the destruction the same way I, I wonder about the the attraction of horror movies. I wonder about the the attraction of movies where everything is destroyed. I mean, isn't that a big drag? Like, what are, are all you people just turned on by abject human misery? What's wrong with you people? Not not you two, not you two, because you're my friends. I mean, uh, you know, I mean America, who I think uh, has has made Godzilla the biggest. Uh, uh, oh yeah, with a bullet. Godzilla is the number one movie uh, this weekend, with uh, an estimated take, according to Box Office Mojo, of uh, ninety-three million two hundred thousand dollars or so. Um, the number two, uh, Neighbors, which I think is the oh yes, that is the Zac Efron, Seth Rogen, frat house moves into a suburban neighborhood comedy, um, uh, trailing you know by a factor of, of three or something like that. Uh, what, 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 uh, why, why do we all want to go watch, uh, watch Hawaii and San Francisco destroyed, right? Like I've been to both places. They're, they're quite pleasant, right? (laughs) I, 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 I have nothing against the people who live in either of those places. They seem like lovely people. Um, I I actually felt that quite palpably in the movie because I've been to Hawaii recently and I, I live, you know, 30 minutes from San Francisco and it's definitely very recognizable. A lot of times in disaster movies, other than like the odd landmark here or there, it, it's not particularly placed in any in any city. It's just kind of buildings get you know rubble getting smashed. 
But uh, definitely San Francisco is distinctive enough that you're, you're always kind of aware that it's not just another city, that this is, in, this is very specific, particularly San Francisco. Uh, and the same pretty much with Honolulu uh, when it gets destroyed. And yeah, I don't know what the, what the appeal is of watching, watching these places get destroyed. I think part of it is a lot of these movies, less so in the, the Honolulu scene, but certainly in San Francisco, they make a big deal out of the fact that for the most part, people have been evacuated from these buildings uh, and so they can kind of smash them willy nilly without having like the human costs be immediately felt. Uh, I think. I mean, I think there's a couple of different reasons why we can conjecture. At least, I mean, I think it would take research, right? It would take like would not. It would take like actual kind of like brain imaging scanning or whatever <laughs> to try to figure out which of these is the reason that people actually like it. But like, I'm thinking about another movie in which they destroyed parts of San Francisco, which was uh, Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, right? Not the sure. Mega Shark eats the Golden Gate Bridge. Right, and I remember when that movie was on television, my sister texted me and said, "The Mega Shark just ate the Golden Gate Bridge!" Like <laughs> exclamation point, exclamation point. It's a movie that stars uh, Deborah Gibson and also features international superstar Lorenzo Lamas. Um, it's one, it's, a, it's probably the last great pre-Sharknado original sci-fi movie. <laughs> but um, but uh, uh, but but. Why is it funny and fun for the San Francisco Bridge for the Golden Gate Bridge to be destroyed? Well, okay, some some ideas. One, the we have a mental dissonance. There's a dissonance in our mind between the permanence and impermanence of human construction and human civilization. Um, this is this is like sort of it's sort of similar to uh, any sort of joke that talks about penguins wearing tuxedos, right? Where it's like, well, we know that the natural world and the human world don't operate in the same way, and that human things are kind of transient, and, you know, because all things will go back to dust and all this other stuff, like, you know, there's an essential difference between the natural forces of the world, which we perceive as immutable, and the things that we build, which we think are immutable, and we think are on par with nature, and we feel that way sometimes because they're so impressed upon our minds, but then there's a big sort of release of this this juncture because deep down we feel that it's that's wrong there's something incorrect about that we dread that all these things around us are going to collapse like how often are people constantly talking about like this is the end of america america is dying and people have been saying this you know every year since 1811 right like um and and it's like well you know it's dying and being reborn every day because none of it is permanent it's all transient and things come and go right but it's like uh when you see the thing that is really deeply imprinted upon your psyche as this sort of iconic immutable object this this thought object and you see it annihilated it it kind of re- it reconciles and resonates with the part of you that kind of suspects that it never was truly permanent um i mean well, may, like like well, the white house gets blown up by the laser beam right and it's just like well the white house is this symbol of just absolute authority right and at least you know not not now but maybe when the movie was made <laughs> but uh and to have it like blown up and destroyed like sort of like shocks our way of thinking about it and says to see it in a new way i mean that's one way can you guys I, think I, of other ways well go ahead i think you're onto something with that last thing about the that they kind of it makes it feel more real because you know like you think about the last scene in planet of the apes and he comes across the statue of liberty like mm. the information that's being transferred there is just that this was earth all along so like there's no reason he couldn't have just found like a plaque that said like on this site stood the Topeka Public Library. Like, that, that imparts the same information about the world that he's living on, but there's something visceral about seeing the Statue of Liberty, because, like, if it's gone, 
there's nothing left of America because nobody has bothered even cleaning up the mess of what was once the Statue of Liberty. See, that's an, inter- that's an interesting scene that's worth talking about because I wonder if maybe the thing that it does that has been interesting and compelling for all these years isn't the, the function that it serves in the movie at all. Like, I wonder, thinking about that scene, because um, you have, you have uh, Charlton Heston, right, who is this... He, he is, like, as strong an argument against moral relativism, right, as, like, the cinema has been capable of producing, right? He's, he's, and it's, there's, this, there's a campiness to it because it's so extreme. This idea, this guy can walk out there and be Moses, right, and walk out there and, like, command authority, and he's... <laughs> and it, this, this, this presence that he has on screen, and here he is in a movie with a bunch of anthropomorphic monkeys, right, or apes, rather, right? It's, like, it's the far distant future, and he's a spaceman, and he's in a loincloth, and he's with this lady, and, like, yes, there's a certain, like, horror to it, and there's a certain cautionary tale to it, but it's also just ridiculous, right? Like, it's also something, and then there's something about his character where his character is unwilling to internalize the absurdity of his situation, right? Like, his character is just totally resists the absurdity of a situation and, and is acting as hard as he possibly can, right, to, to endow this situation with absolute reality, uh, whatever that can be done by sort of the human hands. And then you see this bronze edifice, which is also, in its presence, utterly absurd, right? This idea that these monkeys also have the Statue of Liberty is crazy. Why would they have the Statue of Liberty there? Like, why is that the one thing that survived the apocalypse, right? Like, like, and also, like, it's sort of half buried in the sand, and it, like, looks like it's in pain, right? And it's, like, it's, it's as if somebody had tried to vandalize the Statue of Liberty as badly as possible. Like, it implies that these monkeys and or the wind understands American politics in some way and wanted to create a really powerful metaphorical image, right? Or, like, what have you symbolic image and and so you have on and this but this statue is also one of these symbols that has this mind space to it that's really compelling that is it is like these big nationalistic bronze statues are willing an idea of civilization into being uh that is of course like an invention it's imagination it's thought it's discourse drink and all that stuff right but it's like here you have like charlton heston when charlton heston looks at the statue of liberty in the sand he's kind of looking in a mirror at himself Right, he's kind of looking at like this is like an effort on the part of uh, of a believer to endow a truth into like into matter that won't abide it, right? Into like a matter that is of of an of a universe that's indifferent, right? Like it's like how do we turn an indifferent metal into a statement of belief, of patriotism, of of truth, right? Well, we shape it and we shape it with our hammers and our hands and our and our songs and our thoughts and our camera angles and and like just this idea that there's this tragic mute recognition that Charlton Heston isn't just recognizing something about mankind's penchant for self-destruction, he's recognizing something about, like, mankind's uh, kind of tragic failure to truly create and become the eternal thing that it wants to create and become, right? It's a failure of mankind to create its own eternal self, right? And and this sort of wailing and gnashing of teeth at the futility of, uh, like, being as completely awesome as you can possibly imagine. I don't know. That's that's one thought about it. I don't know. Uh, Now, I'm the one going off on rants, Matt, so you have... uh, you know, 
there's no I, I have nary a leg to stand on criticizing you for delaying for five minutes the entree of the podcast no it's a, it, I did not delay I, I I reject your assessment sir because I said who was on the podcast right at the beginning so oh, right. uh, we were we were underway <laughs> we were off and rolling yeah. uh, right from the thing like Godzilla making his uh, inexorable trek from from destroying Honolulu to destroying San Francisco uh, you know so too has this podcast destroyed Honolulu and has, so too has this podcast destroyed San Francisco well I'll, I'll ask about Godzilla to, to Ben who's seen it like the first Godzilla is about nuclear weapons right and and it's supposed to be sort of like a cautionary tale and scaring us about the dangers of nuclear weapons is there something similar in this movie that's like that or? is it is Godzilla uh, bitten by a genetically engineered spider in this one <laughs> <laughs> This it's one's actually actually that that is an interesting kind of mythology change because it, it is t- a lot of this is tied to uh, nuclear power more actually more nuclear power than nuclear weapons but the mythology here is that Godzilla and uh, the other two monsters because only mild spoiler here because it's in the uh, the trailer but the there are two other monsters that are the real bad guys of the movie they're these ancient parasites that feed on radiation that are going to if they breed and you know have you know baby parasites then these monsters are presumably going to take over the world Uh, and godzilla is the alpha predator that is also an ancient beast that basically just exists to kill these things so godzilla is the good guy in the sense that he kills these bad guys and then leaves so basically it's an argument for intelligent design is what you're saying right right and so all of the monsters here are uh, supposedly like relics of a bygone era. They are supposedly the the giant monsters that live beneath the sea from like the di- age of the dinosaurs. Um, when we are told in clumsy exposition, the radiation on Earth was 10 times higher than it is today. And so apparently that caused giant monsters to be created. Um, and so the, the <laughs> nuclear weapons still play into this mythology. But here, supposedly all the nuclear tests were designed to try and kill Godzilla. Um, or these monsters. It's, it's kind of unclear from the movie who, what exactly they're trying to kill. But basically, uh, shortly after World War II, we became aware of these ancient monsters that still existed, and we started trying to kill them with nuclear weapons. What? The U.S. government has been aware of these ancient monsters all along and has not done anything to, to prepare the public? Or is that why the military can, can deploy so, uh, so efficiently to combat the threat? It's it's actually there's actually like this sh- you'll, you'll be surprised to learn that there's a shadow government involved. <laughs> there's what? this corporation that was created that knows about the monsters because the the navy does not apparently know about the monsters. It was only the the shadow government. Uh, but the monsters feed on nuclear energy, so they the, the Brian Cranston character is involved because he was at a, a Japanese pa- nuclear power plant that was attacked by a monster, so that the monster could feed on the. Uh, the nuclear energy. I'm not in the monster fighting business. I'm in the empire business. <laughs> uh, that sounds um, well. Uh, it it sounds fascinating. And and uh, other overthinkers, um, you should uh, you should write you should write in in the comments and tell us why you want to see uh, these fine cities. You know, uh, symbols of American ingenuity and and human accomplishment destroyed. Um, and write in also and uh, and say what you thought of Godzilla. Um, and I'll just say when when if he finally gets around to using the fire breath, it's pretty awesome. 
Like, like just in that visceral way that, like, when the Hulk starts hulking out at the end of the Avengers, you just, like, kind of want to cheer at the movie screen. But uh, he, he gets around to it. Like, he, he starts... It, uh... he, 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 fights the, he fights without using the fire breath throughout most of the movie. And then at the very end, when he finally decides he actually wants to kill the monsters, I guess, he decides to use the fire breath. Huh. Matt, you've clearly not seen a lot of Japanese action uh, <laughs> right. cinema and or television. <laughs> if you don't understand why a character of such uh, means would forestall using said means for most of the course of the narrative. Uh, <laughs> I, I would refer you once again to Rim, Pacific and its use of the sword <laughs> button, which it does. Right. <laughs> um, or Power Rangers, Mighty Morphin. Indeed. Also, Power Power Rangers, comma Jungle Fever. Wait, no, they don't call. There's not those. Hold on. What kind are there? Power Rangers, Pirate Command. No, Power Rangers. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how many different kinds. Power Rangers, uh, the Fighting Edition, Super Legends. Those are video games. Jeez, um, I'm too old for this. <laughs> Alien Rangers, Mighty Morphin Alien Rangers, uh, Power Rangers Zero, Turbo, the Power Rangers movie, Power Rangers Turbo, Power Rangers in Space, Power Rangers Lost Galaxy, Lightspeed Rescue, Time Force, Wild Force, Power Rangers Ninja Storm, Dino Thunder, uh, Power Rangers SPD, which stands for... <laughs> Special Power Rangers <laughs> Department. Indeed. Uh, Power Rangers Mystic Force. Power Rangers Operation Overdrive. Jungle Fury. That was the one I was thinking of, not Jungle Fever. (laughs) Jungle Fury. Important difference. There's Power Rangers RPM, which happened in 2009, and they turn into cars. I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And then they have uh, Power Rangers Samurai and Power Rangers Megaforce. Uh, But yeah, they're going to make a movie of Power Rangers, by the way. Another one. I heard about it. I hope it's going to be awesome. (laughs) <laughs> it uses all of those all of those things well no when you put it like that pete it makes perfect sense of course definitely <laughs> your uh your your um comment about penguins reminded me uh reminded me of a joke that i think would highlight your point and that i'll, I'll tell just as a kind of bumper between uh, this and the next topic i heard it on a different podcast told by uh podcaster merlin man and it goes like this. Two penguins are floating down an ice flow. One penguin looks at the other and says, you look like you're wearing a tuxedo. The other penguin looks at him and says, who says I'm not? Oh. You see, makes you think, doesn't it? See, I heard that very similar joke, but it was discussed by Garrison Keillor. And that was where I got a lot of the, that's what caused me to draw the connection in the first place. I see. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's I'll, a lot of influence kicking around. Yeah, well, I'm I'm anxious about it. So let's uh let's move on. Um so it's uh it's uh high drama season, which means that someone is giving uh graduation speeches somewhere and someone's oh. being disinvited from being uh get, from giving graduation speeches and someone's being reinvited because they shouldn't have been disinvited in the first place uh because that was a bad move uh to make to disinvite the person. So you got to reinvite them. Uh, so that they can give their uh, they can give their graduation speech. After all, um, I don't know. Have you guys been following any of this any of this drama recently? I followed this Condoleezza Rice situation at Rutgers, um, but I didn't. She wasn't reinstated, was she? Did that uh, no, happen? No, she, she no. backed out. She no, backed but, out. Yeah. But there were some. I mean, there were some. Uh, it's it's been actually it's been like a, a, a rocky season for uh, for commencement speakers, right? There have been a lot of incidences of uh, of uh, a disinviting, uh, reinviting. You know, uh, it's been um, yeah, like Ayan Hirsi Ali up at Brandeis. I remember that. 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's been tough. So we are going to just short circuit all the controversy, and uh, we are going to give you a commencement speech right now. Right? Uh, usually, a commencement speech contains some advice for the graduates after you do. Uh, you know, there's a little obligatory back in my day stuff. Uh, there's a you know there's a little obligatory preening and and sort of credibility establishing right but the 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 meat and potatoes is advice to the graduates uh, and as people who graduated from college uh, a while ago and um, have had you know interesting uh, relatively interesting paths through life uh, I think we have a lot of uh, advice for graduates mm-hmm. so for our uh, for our listeners who are just graduating from college uh, or high school or whatever, whatever you're graduating from, um, you know, a, uh, a yoga instructor program, um, you know, a, uh, I don't know, what else do you graduate from? A, a, you get the, all the, the Pokemon badges from right. the gyms. Absolutely. <laughs> from uh, Mythology. <laughs> I took a cheese class today. It was great. Did you get a certificate at the end? No, it was only Cheese 101. You oh, have to I take see. a bunch of other cheese classes to get a certificate. <laughs> I, once was took a, uh, I once took a, uh, a sushi-making class offered through the, you know, the local uh, college extension place. Right? Th- these things are awesome. And whatever your accomplishments, we celebrate them. And uh, here, uh, here we, want to, we want to give you some advice. Um, I don't know, Pete. What do, you, what, what do we have? What, what would you say is Let our first uh, bit? Start. Yeah, a bit of advice for the people graduating, whatever they may be graduating from. Class of 2014, <laughs> you depart into a world that is rife with conflict, tension, economic inequality, hardship, and injustice. And if there's one thing that I can say to you today that you will carry with you into your days ahead, it is to, to stay alive. Just stay alive, no matter what happens, no matter how long it takes. We will find you. No, no, we know that's that's the, that's the last <laughs> weekend. No, but I will I will say this: that, that that one piece of advice I would say is that it is an honorable thing just to get by, right? It is it is a worthwhile thing to manage to get by in this world. And I think there are a lot of people who finish their phases of education and they look forward and they've externalized some sense of what the world is going to do to them and they they sort of like have this plan for how things are going to happen and I, I would just remind you of the essential dignity of merely making a living because all sorts of crazy things are going to happen to everybody I would say all sorts of crazy things are going to happen to you but that encourages a sort of solipsistic view of the post-college experience wherein the real world descends on you like the galactus worm in silver in rise of the silver surfer right and you're like where's the purple helmet I was promised a purple helmet you don't get a purple helmet you get a big swarm of bugs but you do get Lawrence Fishburne's voice. But that's not the point right now. The point <laughs> is that there's a, t- there's a tendency to think of going out into the world at graduation is this idea that the whole world is going to come at you and the story is about you versus the whole world. And I think it's important to remember that it is in fact everybody is trying to get by. All of these different people. We all have different stories. We're all trying to accomplish all sorts of things. And I think if, if you believe at all in an essential dignity of humanity or in any sort of uh, – whether it's a first principle or it's based on a sort of tradition, an idea of, of goodness or decency, I think you have to respect 
merely just getting by and staying alive and and you know eating and sleeping and simple pleasures uh and you know and maybe you're not doing the job that you thought that you would always do right but you know what like you know will smith didn't think that los angeles was going to get destroyed by a fiery laser beam either right like and you know what you you know the world is what happens to you when you're making other plans so so that would be my first thing it's like it may be years before you are uh you have constructed enough uh, uh, semblance of a narrative around your personal and professional life that you can track its arc and tell its story in a way that satisfies you. But that's okay because the immediate needs of your physical body and emotional self uh, are not easily narrativized. And, and that is something that you should respect and pay a certain uh, attention and, and dignity to. I don't know. That's, that, that's the, my, my first piece of advice. I have a lot of others, but you guys want to chime in? That's with a it? good, uh, no, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good piece of advice. I, I have one, but, but I, I uh, want to be gracious and uh, let others go first. Ben, what, what do you want to say to our uh, graduates here in the class of 14? So I'm, I'm inspired, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the famous graduation speech that we've all heard, the, the buy sunscreen or wear sunscreen speech. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to, you know, come up with like a good analogy for that sounds simple. So, so mine is going to be when you're at, you know, you're at a gas station or a 7-Eleven or wherever you're, you're just happen to be passing through that the front of the store, they always have a little display with like various useful items. It will be like a little nail clipper or a flashlight or a f- extra phone cable. If you f- see one of those things and you can remember in the last like month needing one of those things, go ahead and buy it. Because <laughs> I found I like to have these things just around because I don't they're they cost a dollar. I don't know where they are, and it's useful to just have these things when you need them. So like a flashlight is a perfect example. You don't use a flashlight 99% of the time, but that one day where you really need a flashlight, you're going to be really happy you bought that $5 gas station flashlight. <laughs> yeah. You know you know how what I really feel like that about Ben is uh batteries in yes. every size. Right? <laughs> yes. You you can never really have enough batteries in your house. Yep. <laughs> and, and so I so I can so I can analogize this to to a broader kind of intellectual agenda, which is I think it's a good idea to when you get a chance to get exposed to something that's kind of completely outside your experience, it's okay to just do it for an hour because that first hour is really valuable. Like, you know, I went to, you know, if you go to elect, if you have a chance to listen to a famous psychologist speak for an hour, or if you're just going to watch a TV show that's outside of a normal genre that you're not used to watching, it can be used that worth that time because it's going to be kind of the most valuable hour. You're going to learn the most important thing about those, about whatever that is. Um, and I see that as kind of the same way. You, you get that, you get that short punch of value uh, from right. from buying the gas station flashlight. Right. Did you, can, I, can I can I give another piece of practical advice, Matt? Can I <laughs> yeah, please, please, there? please do. Because <laughs> so, mine is mine is big. Mine is big and kind of impractical. So why don't you give a piece of practical advice? Okay. So this is something that I've discovered. So one of the big decisions that's going to face a lot of you, because I assume that most of you are cosmopolitan. I know a lot of you live around the world in places which might have pretty solid public transportation systems. But I've lived most of the last fifteen years of my life without a car, and a situation. Uh, 
that I've, I've talked about this before in public forums. You may have uh, seen some of my correspondence on it with some of my dear friends. Uh, but uh, as somebody without a car, I often am the recipient of rides from people with cars. This is one of the main ways that you can fight global warming, by the way, is to get people to give you rides places. Because uh, otherwise, it will shrink your own carbon footprint, uh, which you can feel good about, while slightly enlarging someone else's, which also gives you moral authority. So that's something that you should do. You should, <laughs> you should offload. If you have a problematic moral choice, you should offload that moral choice onto someone else. Actually, that, what I would say in that is the exact opposite, which is that you should recognize when you're offloading the moral, implica- moral implications of your actions on other people, such as like, oh, I'm working for a nonprofit that is raising money from a corporation that is doing things that I don't approve of. Uh, how, like, uh, how am I feeling about the fact that I'm involved with the PR of this organization? So on and so forth. But anyway, the main thing I'm saying is that when you're getting a ride from someone, I discovered this really, this really life-changing tip, which I've been told since I've started talking about it in public that you shouldn't do in the winter because it's rude for the driver. But again, if we're offloading our problems onto other people, then that's something that you don't have to worry about, which is that when you <laughs> bag... <laughs> again, it's the opposite of that. Recognize when you're offloading your problems on other people. Not necessarily mean that you should never do it, but be aware of it uh, because again, are you this is- saying that if you have the privilege, you should check it? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you should check your privilege. That is not what I'm saying because I feel like that's that's demanding a, a purity of purpose that is not reasonable. I'm saying you should acknowledge uh, when you're when you're mooching and you're coasting, <laughs> and, and maybe you should keep doing it, but you should acknowledge it at the very least and understand how there's a there's a circle of mutual mooching. It's like the mooch eating its own tail, the moochoporos or something. I'll come up with a different one for it later. But the main thing is when you're riding in a car and someone's giving you a ride. If you've put a, your bag in the back seat of the car or the trunk of the car, if you get out of the car, of the passenger side of the car, and close the door, the person might drive away with your bag without you knowing, without knowing that you've gotten it out. So leave the passenger door open when you open the back door to get your bag out of the car, right? And then close the back door first, and then so you can say goodbye at the end rather than having to say goodbye awkwardly at the beginning and then be like, you know, you know, we all hate that one where it's like, hey, bye, and then you have to like stand behind the the trunk and you like hit the trunk twice because like pop the trunk i have to get this thing out of the trunk like that's awkward right leave the passenger door open so you can get by say goodbye at the end and if they say it's cold then balance that against your desire to be impolite um but anyway yes that that was my number one life hack um that i've i posted a few months ago during the cold months that i got some flack for in real life and some approval for online so there you go you can take that with you to your graduation i loved it i liked i liked that status update (laughs) on your facebook page that did is, you love it or did you like it? <laughs> I, the, I can't love anything, Ben. There's no love button on Facebook. It's not a mode of uh, approbation available to me. I mean, here, you know what? To talk about the check your privilege thing, let me talk about something else. With oh, regard- God. Oh, God. Uh, all right. I'm just well, I'm, I'm going to be over here slitting my wrist because no. of the hate, the hate mail I know I'm going to receive for this. But no, but this is this is really I mean, I think this is really important. And we've said it before, which is that, like, you know, being going out in the world and doing your thing. Right, it's, you always should be learning. Always keep learning. Always be live an examined life. It's the only kind of life worth living if you're not a, a wakeboarder, right? Like it's the examined life. Uh, Socrates didn't have wakeboarding, or he would have revised his statement, or was that Plato? I forget. Anyway, the point is uh, that that you should you should learn to be aware of what you can handle. 
right? And I don't necessarily mean in terms of what you can handle in terms of workload or like in terms of what you're like, how, what kinds of challenges that you can get through, right? Like, and, and all that kind of stuff. That's, that I'm not as concerned about, like, cause you can always do more work or change the work that you do or whatever. But like, um, I, I like to think that, um, that a lot of the aging process is less about your body becoming infirm and more about you Pavlovianly conditioning yourself to not do unpleasant things, right? So, like, um, so for example, hangovers, right? So people, they're like, oh, I have such a hangover now that I'm in my 30s and I can't drink the way that I could when I was in my 20s. And I, and I talk to people and I'm, and I'm like, well, what I remember being in my 20s and drinking and I got horrible hangovers and I felt terrible, right? And it's like, but the thing is, it didn't stop me, right? And it's like, the difference is that now my aversion to it through repetition has built sufficiently that it stops me from doing it, right? Or in fact, you know, other things like my tolerance is backed up and all this other stuff. But it's like, you learn over time to not do the things that make you really unhappy. And you're going to learn to do that whether you want to or not, because they are going to become either, they're going to become either aversions or obsessions. So you're either going to keep doing things that make you feel terrible, like, and you're going to repurpose yourself to doing them more and more and more, or you're going to back away from doing them because you're going to be like, oh, I just don't want to do that. I just don't want to do that. Oh, that's, that's unpleasant. Oh, that's bad. And I think that it's worth noting that you don't really get to be in terms of what you like and don't like doing, you don't get to be the person that you dream of being. You, you, you should be the best person of the preferences and conditionings that you end up having in your life. Right? Like, you know, you could walk out tomorrow and have your leg chewed off by a possum and live the rest of your life in desperate fear of possums. And if you weren't willing to. <laughs> like, that's true. And that could be a fact of your life for the rest of your life that possums always make you scared. Right? And it's like, if you live your life with this idea that you're going to shape your attitudes about everything all the time, that you are going to, like, exercise this big iron hand over all of your thoughts and feelings, the first time something really seriously bad happens to you, it's going to all fall apart. You're not going to understand why. For like, five years and a whole bunch of thousand dollars worth of therapy. So it's like recognize that your emotions get affected by the things that happen to you and that they change and that you should learn what you can handle emotionally so that you can use the time that you have and the capacity you have, the willpower you have, the strength that you have to do the things, use that to do, to make, to build, to be the thing that you want to be. But don't assume that it can all be controlled, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to piggyback on yours. Uh, right. If that is the greatest commandment, uh, the second greatest is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and, and, and here's what, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean by that. Other than, than just making a, uh, you know, joke from, uh, from biblical literature. I, what, what I mean by that is that everyone else is subject to those same, uh, those same pressures that you're subject to, both of uh, of of getting by, uh, as as Ben said, uh, of like needing like little things to get through your life, and, and then then as Pete said, of um, of you know being shaped by forces that are outside uh, outside their their control. Mo- most people are uh, are you know. Um, are, are doing the best they can, right? And I think the more you can have compassion for that, right, the more you can try to think your way out of the cognitive bias of um, uh, I have my reasons for the, the ways in which I fall short, but you fall short and you're an asshole, Right, uh, your your uh, your falling short is within your control, and this is a right. This is a, a like a documented, you know, cognitive bias. I I forget the particular this, name. 
It's the the fundamental attribution error. For okay, your, there your you Wikipedia go. Right? Purposes. Yeah. Sure. You you're and it's a heuristic that says uh, your uh, your choices, your shortcomings, things things about which you experience cognitive dissonance are due to circumstance. Um, for other people, they're due to deliberate choice, to malevolence or malice or uh, you know. Um, you know, not not throw because because there you are, you're Drew Brees standing on that balcony, right? And you're saying, why didn't Brad Pitt throw me a beer? Maybe that was his last beer. You don't know, you know that that it it might not have been. And um, I uh, I I always maybe thought, Drew Brees is an alcoholic, and Brad Pitt knows, and thus Brad Pitt isn't going to throw Drew Brees. Maybe a beer. it was maybe, maybe it was Drew Brees an active kind. Yeah. Maybe Drew Brees was, in, I mean, maybe Brad Pitt was intimidated about the thought of throwing something to one of the NFL's finest quarterbacks. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Or he just wanted to go out on top. I mean, throwing one beer across a road is hard enough, you know. And once you get it, it you you're, you gotta you gotta cut your losses at that point if you, if you go one for two that's embarrassing <laughs> if you go one for one you got it so right like no one wakes up in the morning and says how can i do a shitty job at life today right and and uh i think the extent to which you you can have a sort of deep acceptance and even in your best moments um they won't all be best moments a, a certain amount of compassion uh for other people, especially the people who drive you up the wall, right? Uh, I think you will you will find for yourself um, a lot more happiness uh, and a lot more fulfillment in life to the to the extent uh, to which you're able to do that and to say, right, this person who's an idiot, this person who is politically undesirable, this person who is doing doing this thing with their car that annoys me to no end um, is probably doing uh, is probably doing the best they can. Or, or as my mother used to say when we were driving and someone would like, uh, you know, pass on the right zoom past us weaving in and out of traffic. Uh, she turned to me and say, they're probably rushing to the bedside of a sick child. <laughs> and and you know what i i couldn't i can't say she was ever wrong about that they 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 may have been um I mean, just think about – we talk about pop culture all the time. There's so, so frequently in all this pop culture are people dealing with colossal, horrible, awful things, right? And, and so much of what we aim to get out of this is an understanding of how human, humanity either pulls together or falls apart, You know, what sort of quality we show, what sort of compassion we show, or what sort of courage we show. How do we act? How can we act? How might we act? How do we aspire to act when circumstances become dire and extreme? Right, and it's like I think one of the secrets is that situation. The circumstances are already dire, extreme. Right, like, like you know, the the, the darkest. The, in certain ways, the darkest horror story can't match reality, and in other ways, the most heroic action story can't match reality either. So, in this sense, I think that um, I feel like we have to have a mention and overthinking it about not apologizing for loving the culture that you love and the things that you love to do, um, but I think also sort of recognizing that. Um, 
I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with, uh, with George R.R. R. Martin a little bit when he talks about how fantasy is necessary because real life is, is, a, is a series of grays and middles, and we want to revive our sense for sensory experience. And, and while I do ag- agree to, in the sense of like reviving and heightening our sense of sensory experience as being something that fantasy literature does, I would not posit that life is this series of gray, boring, middle-type things. It doesn't have to be. It isn't for everybody. Maybe it is for some people. But it's also full of extreme situations. Situations uh, that may not even really seem that extreme relative to Godzilla, but uh, relative to you <laughs> having to be in the middle of them while they're happening are pretty freaking extreme. Uh, and, and honor that and recognize that and perhaps draw strength from you know, the, the popular cultural things that, that we all talk about all the time and our love for those things and our shared experience with those things because they are speaking to an experience of life, right? Um, which is sort of the the experience of assembling your own little crew of Avengers, right? To get out there and uh, <laughs> save the, save your world one day at a time. Yeah. And, um, and kind of taking a different pop culture slant on the same thing, I think this is also the response to, I'm, I'm trying to think of a non-pejorative term for this, but kind of fanboy rage. The idea that, like, they're taking this thing that I love and ruining it. As if, like, the purpose of this, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie is specifically to ruin the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Like, as, as Matt said, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to ruin this film franchise today. Yeah. <laughs> like, chances are when someone was making any piece of pop culture, they were either trying to do something and failed, which, which happens. Like, people, you know, fail at things sometimes, and this, that's not a moral failing simply because they were not, you know, they did not succeed at the endeavor in which they undertook. Or they were trying to do something different than the thing you wanted them to do. Like I feel like Michael Bay gets a lot of like a, a lot of kind of unnecessary crap about this for for making the movies that he does. Well, it's like, are you a fourteen year old boy? Well, that's probably why you didn't enjoy his latest movie <laughs> because that's who he made his movies for. <laughs> yeah, I I would I would add to that. I would I would take that even to personal relationships and people's respond um, relationships. I mean, you guys can probably speak to this more effectively than I can, but especially in terms of significant others and close friendships. Um, there's a pressure to kind of be around or be with people who share the same sorts of interests that you share, right? And, and what I would say – and then there's this idea that if somebody doesn't like the things that you like, that you, there's, you can't be friends with them or you can't be around them or there's like – there's these algorithmic matching ideas of like, okay, well, you know, I like Doctor Who and they like Doctor Who, so we're going to watch Doctor Who together and that's going to be our life. No, no, no. That's a terrible – that's a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. And, yeah. and here's why, Right. You can't watch Netflix unless your partner is there. Do you see the problem? <laughs> if you're watching a show together and you go ahead, even a fraction of one episode, <laughs> there is going to be just an awful fight, a, 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 not, a, a throwing things, screaming at the top of your lungs, frightening the neighbors fight. And you, so you just can't do it. You know, you accept early on that you cannot watch one little sliver of Star Trek Deep Space. Space Nine, <laughs> unless uh, your significant other, whom you love very much, is is there with you. If you like different TV shows, this problem works out by itself. You know, <laughs> B- because you're going to watch Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, they're going to watch uh, uh, Pushing Daisies or something, right? Not that I'm taking these examples from my life, but uh, and 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 there will be harm. 
harmony and accord <laughs> within the household. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I co-sign this, uh, this uh, bit of advice wholeheartedly. What I was, I think, the way I'd term it is don't love someone for what they love. Love someone for how they love. Right? Like, it, it, I feel like that's more valuable. It said, okay, when, when this, the way this person talks about pushing daisies, that's, a, that's, a, that's something that I want to have in my life. Like, that energy, right. that, that, that way of relating to that thing. You know, like, this is, this is a, something that I want to be around. Like, this, is a, this is something that I think will make my life better uh, and something that I think I can make the life of better, too. Right. So, so watch TV like nobody's watching. <laughs> in your underwear. <laughs> well, this this actually kind of cycles back to I think our original the, the impetus for this discussion the the recent uh, um, refusal the kicking of people off campuses for commencement speak, speaker speeches because there's this there's kind of a purity test being enacted here that if you don't reach a certain standard of purity you you can't you can't speak at our conference. And that's the kind of, you don't want to have a purity test for your friends. Like, here are the 10 things that I like. You must like all 10 of those things so that we can talk about them together. Like, no, it's okay if you only like one of the same things and you can talk about that together. I mean, I, I would, I would, I had a different perspective on the whole uh, people being kicked away from giving commencement speeches thing. I'm on board with people getting kicked away for giving commencement speeches when they're political people. And by political people, I don't mean politi- people with political a- attitudes or opinions or actions. I mean people who have constructed their identities in such a way that they perform identities in public that are political identities that exist instrumentally for political purpose. I, I hate commencement speeches by politicians. They are boring, they are self-serving, they are bullet points that are on message, they contribute nothing. They are selfish, and I don't like them from anybody. Um, and, and I think that, uh, that if you are going... That's the other thing, is that we are all... I'll turn this into some practical advice for everyone. Is that we are all pretty aware at this point in kind of a postmodern kind of way of the implications uh, to the discourse of the things that we say and how we say them. The, the, the words that we choose, the tone that we set, what things that we glorify that we don't glorify. Uh, and I feel like when we get into disagreements about things that we care about, we're forced by this knowledge, it, if it matters, to speak untruthfully, indirectly, deliberately incorrectly because we knew that speaking truthfully, directly, and correct, correctly would cause us to lose, right? This is like the sort of swift boat. You can't, in the world where swift boat veterans for truth exists, you can't be John Kerry. You will lose, right? And the piece of advice I would give is not to resist this in your life because you can't. It's the reality of the way things work. You're surrounded by liars, and you're going to probably have to lie a fair amount in order to not always get run over by them. Um, but what I would say is, is have the decency and respect for your friends and the people who are close to you to spare them that level of detachment from what you think and what you say, right? Among friends, don't do that. I know you can't do it everywhere, but among friends, stop, right? And, and talk to, and, and, allow, and also the other way goes too. allow them to talk to you in an unguarded way uh, and, and acknowledge that and allow them to be in your life in that unguarded way, because that's part of what they need from you. And that's part of what you need from them. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is an interesting thing. And without like rehashing, 
the story of Gaijis in the Ring, right? Like, there's there's a difference between public life and and private life, and you would do well to sort of cotton on to that as quickly as you can, right? You owe your friends and loved ones a different set of obligations than you owe fellow citizens, say, you know, and and uh, it's a more strenuous, it's a tougher set of of obligations, uh, largely because you get to choose uh, choose that people, right? You can you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose. Um, but you can't pick your friend's nose's political beliefs or something, but, uh, you, you, uh, you know, you have to, uh, you, you have to relate, you have to relate to your friends in, in a much more generous, um, in a much more generous sort of way. And, and I suppose like the great, the great heroes, the great moral heroes of history are, are the people who push the circle of, uh, push the circle of sort of community out as far as all of humankind. Um, right. Uh, but, uh, but if you fall short of that, uh, as we all mostly do, um, you know, it's it's good enough if uh, if within your community you can you can sort of have that extra the, go the extra mile of 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 generosity and sort of generosity generosity of spirit right yeah empathy is a social organizing principle right um, it's 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 something that works on different levels for different levels of people and the I don't think it it it's I don't think it endures uh, I don't think it's scalable to everybody. Now, love, you can talk about a love that you have for everyone, a universal love that you have for everyone, and you can speak about it in a meaningful way, like an essential dignity that you think everybody has. But I don't think that you can be, you can or really should be equally empathetic to everybody, because I think at that point, the idea of being empathetic, like, loses its meaning since it's a differentiator. Hmm. Um, although I guess you could have it for people and not for animals or for animals too. I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess I would say if you eat meat, uh, be willing to kill an animal at some point in your life to take responsibility for it <laughs> because then you'll have something up on the people who will try to criminalize you for it. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, a, that's a really rude thing for me to say. No, it's tough. Like, <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's, it's tough. I mean, what you're, what, you're, what you're describing is really tough because we, we sort of talked about this sort of postmodern uh, postmodern condition and a lot of the, I mean, a lot, and you also talked about sort of survival and getting by, right? A lot of the actual nitty gritty of survival is hidden under like five layers of indirection. And, uh, you know, it, it would be good. You can't do it on a regular basis. Uh, you know, not if you're going to do any kind of higher order accomplishment at the same time, right? Like living off the grid is a full-time job. Uh, if you want that full-time job, good on you. Uh, I have other things in mind for my life, right? But, at least once go you know go and do it right at least once go down to the farm and and uh sort of understand um understand the kind of basic transactions uh that undergird your survival the sort of basic transactions of of survival well we got deep and philosophical all of a sudden godzilla (laughs) does that to people (laughs) (laughs) right um, all right, part, parting shots. Uh, anyone? Quick, uh, quick tips. Lightning round of uh, of advice to. Um, oh, here's one. Uh, men, uh, 
if you are living uh, if you are living with a woman, put the goddamn seat down. You will save so much discord. It's not a moral. It's not a moral choice. It's it's a practical choice, right? If you want never to have a conversation about it again in your life, just put the freaking seat down. How hard is it? Yeah, I'd, I'd say. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Well, I'll say as a, since I'm continuing my unbroken streak of leaving typos in overthinking it posts and then being corrected in the comments. Uh, learn to proofread effectively because there's virtually no jobs in the modern era in which improving your writing ability will not yield, you know, outsized dividends. There, there is a spell check uh, button in that post editor. Uh, I know. <laughs> no, this time it was on the graph. It was on the graph. <laughs> oh, get it. oh, that's where that's terrible because there's no spell check in Photoshop. Exactly. That's, you know what? Everyone have compassion for poor Ben Adams, <laughs> who like stayed up late a number of nights writing an awesome article for you. Don't give him poop about in the in the comments about a. Uh, you know what he was trying to say? For God's sake, we're we're it's a small blue marble. We're all in this together. Compassion. Yeah. I mean, my my last thought is while I've, it's often been for good reason, and I don't regret many of the things that have caused it to happen. I will say that in the, I mean, I've been out of college for more than ten years now, and in these intervening ten years, uh, and uh, you know, had a variety of terrible things of greater or lesser degree happen to me and to people I love, and I will say that nothing has caused me more pain and suffering than not getting enough sleep. Like, that's just, like, the biggest, I think the biggest thing that I could have done over the course of the last 10 years to improve my life would have been to sleep more. And just getting enough sleep, feeding yourself adequately, just taking basic care of yourself is so huge. It's so much bigger than resolving the big existential questions in terms of providing for your general prosperity. Um, and I mean, if there's, if there's one regret I have, it's, it's not having better sleep hygiene through like the entire course of my life. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, that, like you're not better than your body, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Even if you're Godzilla. <laughs> all right well uh if you have advice for graduates uh if you want to talk about why you want to see cities destroyed if you saw godzilla uh if you want to talk about throwing things from balcony to balcony in new orleans or wherever you happen to be uh the place to do that is on the show notes for this episode uh i in the comments section um we love the comments that we have oh uh sorry another easy lightning round um overthinking it accepted do not read the comments <laughs> Wherever you are, don't re- read the article. Don't leave the comments, except uh, for on overthinking it, where we have a notoriously civil comment section, a phrase that I've been thinking about trademarking or applying for a trademark on, <laughs> applying to register a trademark on anyway, because uh, no one else, I think, literally can, can claim uh, the same. Uh, as we can. So uh, come uh, comment in the show notes if you'd like to uh, uh, send us some email. It's podcastsoverthinkingit.com. It's uh, also 203-285-6401 if you want to leave a voicemail. One of these days we will get around to that listener feedback show. I, I promise. Um, we uh, are continuing... Um, uh, television recaps. Uh, I, I understand, Pete, that there was a, an astonishing twist ending to the latest 24 Live Another Day recap. 
There was. It was outstanding. You, 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 you were there, Matt. Uh, gosh, we're going to have to recap it at the beginning of the next episode. <laughs> pre- previously on 20, Overthinking It Recaps 24. If, if you're watching uh, 24 at, at all, and I know a lot of you are because there have been, there have been some great comments uh, saying that, that they're glad we're, we're doing this, a, an actual popular television show that a lot of people watch, <laughs> as opposed to like Mad Men or you know Community or the things that we usually do. Uh, beloved though those shows are to us. Um, Uh, If you haven't been listening, uh, if you're watching the show and you haven't been listening to uh, Pete and Ryan recap 24 Live Another Day, uh, do yourself a favor and listen to it. I'm not even watching the show and I listen to it. Uh, Pete started the second episode with a previously on the 24 recap (laughs) where there was cut together a uh, uh, a montage of things from the last. I can't even imagine how how long that took you to do. (laughs) That is so awesome. Uh, Putting putting all kinds of work into them to uh, uh, to make them awesome, so you can do yourself a favor and, and uh, listen to those. Also, the Game of Thrones recaps uh, continue uh, continue unabated uh, with tonight's episode, or I guess yesterday's, if you're listening to this podcast uh, on Monday. We do those on Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific. You can watch them live uh, on the YouTube channel, and we tweet a link for those. You can watch them archived later on YouTube, on our channel on YouTube, uh, and you can... Um, uh, also get the audio which goes out on the podcast feed. And one last thing, if you, if you listen to this podcast, if you, if you like it, if you download it, uh, would you consider subscribing so that they also, so that they download automatically? You can subscribe through iTunes if that's how you get podcasts. There's also an RSS feed if you use a different podcatcher than iTunes, uh, if you are in the Android ecosystem or if you use a different app or program, uh, to download podcasts, you can get those, uh, as well, uh, via, uh, via RSS feed. Uh, um, it it helps us when you uh, when you subscribe and when these uh, uh, when these numbers go up for a ver- for a variety of reasons the more uh, the more downloads the better it is for overthinking it so if you if you like the show uh, subscribe to it and there are links to that in the show notes uh, there will be another overthinking it podcast next week till then you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Wearing sunscreen is not a bad idea. As you graduate today, remember that any remix can be a Godzilla remix if you just add one Godzilla scream. Da 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 da. Wicka 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 remix.